0: Great to be out with God's people again, getting to study from His Word and see the example that we have before us in Christ Jesus. If I asked you what the biggest problem facing the church of Christ today is, what would you say? This is not a question and answer session. This is supposed to be completely rhetorical. No one actually talked to me. Uh, No, facing the Church of Christ at large, you could come up with a lot of different answers. And I'm not expecting everyone here to have one answer. But when I've kind of polled some of this before, I've asked some people this kind of questions before, you hear splits. That's a pretty common thing. According to one study, and I only saw it in one study, so take it with a grain of salt, the average church of Christ, using the broad term, church of Christ, splits about every 30 to 40 years. Which is not a good, favorable number. So that's one issue facing the church today. What about the pressure from the outside world? The pressure to become like everyone else, sort of abandoning Bible teachings and becoming like everyone else. That threat from the outside. You hear that sometimes. What about young people leaving the church? That's a hot topic That's a scary thing. You don't want to look at those numbers, not just for the church of Christ, but for Christianity. Big sense of the word. Young people are leaving the church at a rapid rate. Or what about a problem that maybe faces the church of Christ more than some of the other groups? People don't want to come in here. People don't want to walk in these doors. They don't want to have anything to do with the church of Christ. We've gotten a little bit of a reputation outside of these walls. Those are some of the answers I've heard. And I'm sure you could come up with 20 more. All equally valid. But... What if I told you that behind those problems, behind those threats and issues, there was really a root cause of the heart that's at least partially causing a lot of those other problems? Because I think that's what Paul says in Philippians 2. So if you want to turn to Philippians 2 today... Paul is going to tell us a lot about how we should be living. And not only is he going to tell us about what our heart needs to be and what that looks like when we're together, but he's going to tell us some of the blessings and benefits that come with that lifestyle, that come with that path. And it's going to look like a very different church to what sometimes, unfortunately, we actually see in the real world. So we're going to look at Philippians 2 today and see what we can learn about what the church is supposed to look like. But before we get to chapter 2, I want to draw out a few things that Paul has talked about in Philippians up to this point. Because in chapter 1, Paul's talked about some of the horrible opposition that he has faced. So we talked about that threat from the outside. Paul's faced it. Paul's gotten in trouble. Paul's been arrested. Paul has faced a lot of threats from the world that we can't even relate to. And yet, Paul is encouraged. And if that's not bad enough, if it's not just that Paul's in jail, because it's not just that Paul's been in jail, the problem is also... We've got people out that are saying they're preaching the gospel, but they're not doing it because they love God. They're doing it out of jealousy. They're doing it out of envy. They're doing it out of bitterness. So you've got problems from the outside. You've got problems, we'd say, from the inside. And yet Paul is encouraged through Jesus. And we don't quite understand how in chapter 1. He kind of just says that Christ is glorified through all of this. And he doesn't really make it clear how. And he's going to expand on that in chapter 2. But as he concludes chapter 1, if you want to pick up verses 27 through 30 with me, Even though Paul's in this super bad situation, he still uses this opportunity to encourage the Philippians to a certain kind of lifestyle. And this is sort of the preview to what we see in chapter 2. Chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or whether I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened any, anything by your opponents, for this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So in this sort of discourse about suffering, we get the first hint at what Paul's solution is. And he kind of says it in the most broad way possible to start. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't have to tell you how big of a calling that is. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel. When you think of all of the things that encompass the gospel, living in a life manner worthy of that message of Jesus and God's love and forgiveness, that's a big calling. And so, what exactly does that mean? And that, in some sense, is what Philippians two talks about—at least the early part of Philippians two. So, if you want to start, we're just going to read—we're uh, going to read chapter two, verses one through eleven, just to start. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete. By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, exi- who though in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped towards. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of man. And when, and when he had become a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this passage not only gives us the perfect view of what this solution is, but how to get there. And so let's take a few minutes to look at this in greater detail. So Paul starts Philippians 2 by continuing that idea that we saw of the life worthy of the gospel. Because in chapter 1, he says the life worthy of the gospel, that includes being of one spirit, being in one mind, fighting together side by side. And as we get into chapter 2, that's exactly what Paul reiterates again. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, almost these kind of rhetorical kind of questions. And we would say, yes, Paul, we know that there is encouragement in Christ. We know that there is comfort in love. And we know that the church should be continuing in these things. And so Paul continues, since you know that, Since we can all agree on that, so complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul says if you're ever going to find that encouragement in Christ, if you're going to ever find the comfort in love, if you're ever going to find participation in the spirit, that can only be found by the church being unified. Paul says you want to face the opposition of the world because these threats are coming. You've seen they're already here in my life and they have been here in my life. You want to face the outside world? First, you have to be one body. You have to be of one mind. You have to love each other in a united, godly love. Paul says that's how you achieve participation in the Spirit. And I don't have time to talk about what all participation in the Spirit is. I know there's a lot of different opinions on that. But let me tell you this. The Bible makes it pretty clear. You cannot be a faithful church of God if you don't have participation in the Spirit. There is no church without participation in the Spirit. So you see what Paul's saying here? Without this love, without this unity, this is nothing more than just a club where we all get together, spend some time together on the weekends. Without this unity, we're not God's people. We're just a group of people claiming to be God's people. That's how important... This idea of living this life worthy of the gospel is. And it starts with unity. But I think we all know that, right? I don't think there's anyone here that would raise their hand and say, actually, I would like to have a divided church. I would like to have a church where we all hate each other. That makes me a lot more comfortable. I don't think anyone's volunteering for that. We talk a lot about unity, how we need to be unified, how unity is an ideal we're all striving for. And that's kind of where it stops. What does unity look like? What does unity look like? That's a hard question. But luckily, Paul gives us a look into that in the next few verses. Notice what he says in verse three and four. Here's how you achieve unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see what Paul's saying here? Here is how you achieve that unity. Here is how you achieve participation in the spirit. Here is how you achieve that encouragement in Christ. Everybody forget about yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. That doesn't leave the kind of like, oh. Well, I kind of can have one foot in and one foot out. No, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But think of others as more highly than yourself. This is a full buy-in. Here's how you achieve that love and unity you forget about yourself. But let me tell you, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to forget about myself. Sure, Unity sounds real nice, sounds really good, but I would like the get rich quick way to get to Unity, because that whole being humble thing's really hard. And it could be especially hard because a lot of times we are wired to be the center of our own little universe, especially now. Especially now, because let me just, if you've got one of these, or if you've got a TV, or if you've got a computer, or if you've got anything like that, and I'm going to say most people here do, everything is wired specifically for you. Your advertisements are targeted toward you your social media feed, your news is targeted toward you, what they think you will like and engage with. Let me tell you, the other day I was checking, uh, I use Spotify to listen to my music on my phone, and it created 48 playlists for me the other day, 48 of different music and podcasts and news and sports that it thinks I would like. And the little area, the for you area, it had the tagline, oh, let's see if I can find it in my notes, Uh, you are the main character, it's all about you, it's made for you. And I say, well, yes, Spotify, I am. (laughs) But that's the way that we are wired. Everything is targeted to specifically interest and excite you, get you to buy things, make you think about what you need. That's how the world runs right now. And Paul says that doesn't work in the church. You can't do anything from that desire for you that desire for your own selfish ambition, that has to be put aside in the church because that brings division, that brings discouragement, that brings discomfort. And I'll just say, when we're talking about young people leaving the church or not enough people coming in these doors... If we're a family that every single one of us is fighting for our own opinions and interests, every single one of us is constantly divided based off of what I want and what I feel, who wants to stick around for that? I don't know how many different kinds of Thanksgivings or Christmases you've been to over the years. I've been to a few. And there is a big difference between a family that's excited to see each other, a family that wants to spend time together, and a holiday where everyone's always at each other's throats. It doesn't matter how good the food is, I don't want to sit around at a Thanksgiving where everyone's constantly arguing. And why do we think it's going to be any different for our family? If we can't stop fighting with each other, no one's going to want to join this family. And if I'm a young person, and I'd like to think I am, and all I grew up with, was seeing God's people hate each other, God's people talk about each other behind their back, God's people say, well, that guy doesn't really understand the Bible like we do. If that's what I grew up with, hearing in the back of the car on the way home from church service, why would I want to stick around for that family? What kind of family is that? You see, the church is supposed to be the very model Of God's love on earth. It should be no more clear anywhere. You should be able to walk the entire earth. And you should know where God's people are. Because of the love and unity in here. And that's not what you see in the church very often. And that's exactly the point that Paul goes on to make. Because Paul says it's not just good enough to talk about being humble. It's not just good enough to say, do nothing from selfish ambition. Paul says, look at the example we have. Pick back up in verse 5 with me. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, here's your example. You want to know what unity looks like? You want to know what humility looks like? Look to Jesus. And it's almost like Paul gives the... So Jesus decided not to reach up towards God and take power... But he humbled himself. And if that wasn't good enough, he humbled himself to the point of becoming a man. And if that wasn't good enough, he took the form of a lowly man. And if that wasn't good enough, he was abused by everyone. And if that wasn't good enough, he was killed. And if that wasn't good enough, he was killed on a cross. That's almost the logic you follow of Paul. He keeps going. He's like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Jesus, in the form of God, said, I'm willing to die as the worst of the worst in humanity. And then Paul turns to you and says, what's your excuse? What do you have that is so important that you can't give up? Look at what Jesus gave up. Everything. Everything. And he gave it up for you. So what is so important that you can't give it up for others? You could pretty well say that the universe revolved around Jesus. You could say that pretty safely. It was created through him, in him, for him. And yet, he threw aside all of that. For love in humility for us. And I understand there's things that we can't give up and throw away, right? Because every time I want to talk about unity and how we need to put aside things for the brethren, people are like, well, we can't put aside the word of God. We got to stand on what's sin and what's truth. I agree with that 100%. I'm not going to fight you on that. How often are the fights we have actually about sin and truth? Not very often. If you talk about how often churches split and then you start asking people, well, why did this church split? Why did that church split? Why did they start fighting? It's very rarely on, well, this brother committed a sin and the rest of the congregation wanted to tolerate it, but some people didn't. That happens, but more often than not, it's this brother started fighting with this brother on this opinion, and they tore the whole church apart because of it. They tore the whole church apart because they couldn't get along with each other. Some family, that is. So Paul's not saying... You can ignore the truth so that you can be unified. But Paul's also not saying you're going to agree on every little point. Because let me tell you, you're not. That's not what Paul says unity looks like. Paul doesn't say unity is everyone's going to exactly think the same thing on every. You're going to agree on every interpretation of Matthew 23. You're going to agree on every single little point. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, here's what unity looks like. You don't let your opinions and your desires and your selfish ambition get in the way of God's people. And you know how Paul knows that? Because that's Jesus. Because Jesus put away everything for us. Kind of comes back to the old, literally the oldest temptation in the book. In Genesis 3, 4, and 5, regarding the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the serpent told Eve, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. All the way back at the beginning... Mankind was tempted to try to take what God had, to try to be like him, to try to get to forge their own way, be their own creator. It's the oldest temptation in the book. And Paul says, you want to be like God? Because people think being like God, that means I get to set my own rules. I get to do what I want and everyone else should agree with me and follow me. Paul says, you want to be like God? Here's how you can do it. Be a servant. Forget about yourself. That's how you can be like God because that's what God does. And that's the only way you can be a family of God's people. So the question is, What do we do with it? That's what the passage says, but what do we do with it? And I think the first step is pretty clear, right? You probably know where I'm going with this. We as Christians have to, have to live like Jesus lived. And that's all of us. Like we talked about earlier, that doesn't work if like, 80% of the congregation says, I'm going to put away everything and I'm going to be humble. And 20% still holding on. That doesn't work if 98% of the church says, okay, I'm going to be humble. And the 2% holds on to their opinions and their desires and their selfish ambitions. This is a all in kind of a thing. Every single one of us has to put away ourselves. And that's exactly what Jesus said when he was on earth. If you want to turn to Mark 10, it's one of those passages, one of the seemingly dozens of passages where Jesus' apostles were trying to get ahead and trying to forge their own way and get glory for themselves. This time it's James and John trying to convince Jesus to give them a special spot in eternal glory. And this is Jesus' response. Mark 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions use their authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, in the world, people are selfish. People do everything out of selfish ambition. They're trying to climb ahead of each other. They're trying to get glory. They're trying to hold power. That's the world. It's just the same world we're living in. The world where everything's about me. I'm the main character. It's all created for me. That's the world, Jesus says. But it's not that way among you. Among you, you must be a servant. The servant of all. You want to be a leader in the church? You want to be a part of a unified family? Here's how you do it. You serve. That's not the only time Jesus said that. After washing the disciples' feet in uh, John 13, John 13 is starting in verse 12. This amazing show of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. God himself lowering himself to wash the feet of lowly men. And this is what Jesus says after. He says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he said, do you understand what I have done for you? And I kind of imagine that the disciples are kind of sitting there like with blank expressions like, no, I have no idea what you just did for us. And Jesus explains, you call me teacher and you call me Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. For truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Same thing Paul says in Philippians 2. Jesus, as an example for us, lowered himself as far as you could possibly lower yourself. And then he was blessed and glorified for it. And Jesus says, my people will lower themselves and serve each other and they will be blessed for it in the end. It's the same message. Paul's not coming up with anything new here. This is as long as God's plan has existed, this has been been the plan. Jesus says, look at me. I'm the teacher. I'm the son of God. And I'm serving you go and do the same thing. Go and serve and you'll find unity. You'll find encouragement. You'll find participation in the spirit. You'll be the family of God that you're meant to be. And all of those other things, those splits don't happen when we're serving each other. People don't leave when they feel like this is a unified family of God, not nearly as often. You're going to be a lot more likely to get people in these doors if when they come in here, they see God's love. Just about any problem you can think of in the church, I'm not saying it's going to completely fix everything. People are still going to leave sometimes. But I can guarantee you this, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, we will be blessed for it those problems, they're going to fix themselves. And I don't have to say that because that's what Paul said. That's what Jesus said. That if you serve each other, you're going, to find that, you're going to find that unity. You're going to find that love. You're going to find that encouragement. That's a promise. So I guess the call at the end of this lesson is the same call that Paul gave in Philippians 1 live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I won't pretend that that's not a high calling, because it is. It's a very high calling. But luckily, we're not doing it alone. The verses right after what we read in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, this is what it says. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and according to his good purpose. And then he says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. And that's the idea. Yes, that's a high calling. This sort of unity, this sort of humility, it's hard, and I'm not going to tell you it's not. Because it is contrary to everything you see outside these doors. It's tough. But if you're willing to lower yourself, God will do the rest through you. That's the promise of Philippians 2. So, let's get to work. Loving and serving. I've been told to remind everyone that this week only, this Sunday only, all the adults are in this classroom for this Sunday. So if you're an adult, don't leave. You're going to have to come right back. All right, let's say a prayer and then be dismissed to our classes. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. And thank you for showing us what true love is. Thank you for giving us an example of what humility and sacrifice looks like by sending your son as the perfect example that we should emulate of complete and total love. Help us all, each and every one of us, to strive to live in that example. To take away our cruel, thoughtless, selfish words to remove our pride and help us to see each other like we're supposed to, a family of yours. Help us to think only of others and not of ourselves and give us the humility and strength and the love to be the unified, encouraging, strong group of your people that we're meant to be. Help us always to live a life worthy of your gospel. In your son, our perfect example's name we pray. Amen.